Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dracula class number eight, which I hope that we will succeed in uh, actually having the very first time we attempt it. That's my goal. Um, <laughs> unlike last class. Uh, but welcome. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you. First, I wanted to announce in case you hadn't heard. Uh, thanks, Neil. Neil's reassuring me that uh, my sound is not bad this time. So there we go. See, Neil, that's a good omen that we're actually going to get through things in one shot here tonight. Okay. In case you haven't seen yet, we have official election results uh, for the next two books that we are going to discuss uh, in the Mythgard Academy. Hang on a second. You can't see me, Karina? Can anybody else see the webcam image? Is that like sharing for most people? It's theoretically sharing. Yeah, okay, most people can. All right, good. Okay, just you, Karina. Anyway, um, good. So, um, excellent. So, anyway, uh, two books. Our next two books. First, we have not really a shocking election result, uh, but I was very pleased. The Lost Road, book five of the History of Middle-Earth series. So we will, uh, the, the, uh, the, the people have spoken. We shall uh, continue and carry through our next, um, the, you know, our, our History of Middle-Earth series discussion that we've been having. We've done Book of Lost Tales 1, Book of Lost Tales 2, Lays of Beleriand, and The Shaping of Middle-Earth, and we are now moving on to The Lost Road. I have said it before, and I'll say it again. I have never done a comprehensive, like, cover-to-cover, one-end-to-the-next study of the history of Middle-Earth before, and it has been awesome. I have so loved the first four books that we have done, uh, and sort of each one, uh, each one more, um, more than the next. Uh, so excited, really excited uh, to do The Lost Road with you guys. Uh, so that's going to be coming up next. Of course, next is like the beginning of July. Uh, I think we're scheduled for the first Wednesday in, in July as our first uh, class session for that, because we still have quite a bit of Dracula to do. Uh, we have uh, three more sessions in which we're going to talk about the book. So there's tonight, tomorrow night, or tomorrow night. Next week, uh, when we're going to do class number nine and get through the last chapter... And then I want to do one more class where we'll do some sort of Q&A and general discussion. I hope you guys will have some questions or topics that I didn't hit on that you would want um, uh, that you would want me to touch on. So we'll do we'll do a sort of a bonus class on that. Then we're going to talk about movies because you can't do Dracula and not talk about movies, right? I mean the the sort of the film adaptations of Dracula, the dozens of film adaptations of Dracula, uh, you know, over the last hundred odd years. Um, are, have been such a huge part of the impact of this book and uh, a really fascinating sort of view or you know kind of glimpse of film adaptation so we're um uh we're 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 gonna as i said we're gonna do four of those uh so anyway so we've we've definitely um we've definitely got some um got some time uh and uh, oh rachel has a good question she says if you haven't been able to read the other books is it possible to pick up at book five of the history of Middle-earth? Yeah, I mean, Rachel, of course, there's always the risk, you know, a certain amount of risk, uh, that I'm going to be sort of referring back to some stuff that we touched on, mostly just because there will be some things I just won't want to go over the same ground again if I've already covered it a lot in the other class. Um, but, you know, the history of Middle-earth is not exactly like a... 
you know, a sort of a progressive, uh, you know, sort of cliffhanger <laughs> kind of deal, right? Um, so I think it, it would be it would be perfectly possible for you to pick up there with us. Um, and of course, we have there. There are the recordings of the other four, right? You can you and you have time between now and then. You could go back and uh, and uh, watch all four of those classes in between. Uh, but anyway, yeah, no, that that should be fine. And the second book. So after we do the Lost Road, uh, the next book we're going to do uh, is now. This was a very very close election. It was a it was a very tight race. I'm told for second place, um, but uh, winning by a nose uh, was. Dispossessed, uh, the, the, the dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, uh, which is great. I haven't, uh, I've never taught. I taught uh, uh, the Wizard of Earthsea, but I've never taught anything else by Le Guin. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to do Le Guin. So, so we're gonna do the Lost Road and then Ursula Le Guin next. So that'll that'll take us that'll take us into the fall certainly. Uh, so uh, thanks to everybody uh, who voted, and of course. Most importantly, I want to take advantage of the opportunity to thank everybody who's donated to Mythgard and to Signum University, its parent institution. We've, we've, you know, you realize we've. I was just looking at YouTube the other day. You realize we've we've now posted about 250 hours worth of these seminars over the last two and a half years. You know, and we've been able to make them free to everybody. You know, thanks to your generosity, it's been awesome. I mean, thousands of people have downloaded these you know, hundreds of sessions that we have posted. Um, it's been really, it's been really cool. And I would just, I would add, if you've been enjoying these seminars and you haven't yet made your tax deductible donation, um, you know, to help support us, I, I, I'd ask that you consider doing so. Every bit helps, you know, and every one-time gift or small monthly donation is extremely valuable to us and, and really very much appreciated. So, uh, just go to signumuniversity.org, um, you know, so this is our homepage here, and down on the fast links, uh, hit, just hit the donate button at the top of the fast links page, and this will bring you straight to our uh, to our fundraising page. So, um, I just wanted to just wanted to invite you to do that. You know, and and again, thanks again for all the support that you guys have been. You guys are awesome. As um, uh, as Van Helsing would say, it is worth to teach you, right? So uh, I I, uh, I I appreciate. All that you guys have done. Um, <laughs> Brandy for all says Arthur. Well, only in the case of a widespread crisis, Arthur. I mean, you know, you don't want to. You know, it's medicinal, right? You want to drink it recreationally. Um, anyway, but thank you again, seriously, guys. All right, shall we get back to Dracula here? Let's uh, let's see if we can go. Th- now, I, I said last time that I was going to. Um, I was going to do to to come back to my Stoker as a feminist argument, uh, which I which I I had to, I had to, to to put off at the end of class last time. So I'm going to do a sort of a bigger swath of it this time, which is actually kind of it kind of works uh, kind of works well together. So that's good. Um, by the way, this is I think my favorite class title I've come up with yet uh, for this class. Uh, well, as soon as as soon as I came, uh, you know, when I was rereading this week, as soon as I came to this Van Helsing quote, "There is to her the silence." I'm like, "Oh yeah, that is that class title. That's totally it." Um, so let's talk about Mina and her silence. Um, all right. Okay, so. First, going backwards, you know, remember. So remember, these passages, this first set of passages, is going to be covering both last uh, last week's reading and uh, this week's reading. So um, we start with remember the professional opinion. It's not just 
bias. You know, it's not just it's not just uh, hey, little woman. You know, sit back and shut up. It's it's it, this is this is medical, right? Uh, these are professionals that we're talking. These are not just bigots. These are professionals. Uh, so I shall go, if I may, so this is Van Helsing speaking, of course, and cheer myself with a few happy words with that sweet soul, Madam Mina. Friend John, it does rejoice me unspeakable that she is no more to be pained, no more to be worried with our terrible things. Though we shall much miss her help, it is better so. And this is, of course, right before the absolute catastrophe. I agree with you with all my heart, I answered earnestly, for I did not want him to weaken in this matter. Notice that, like, kind of paternalistic attitude that Dr. Seward takes even towards Van Helsing. Like, he's afraid that Van Helsing is going to be over-sentimental, right? That Van Helsing's, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, affection for Mina is going to outweigh his medical opinion, right? And so Dr. Seward is wanting to, you know, firm him up, right? Be strong in what you know to be right, Dr. Van Helsing, right? Um, uh, anyway, Mrs. Harker is better out of it. Things are quite bad enough for us, all men of the world, who have been in many tight places in our time. But it is no place for a woman, and if she had remained in touch with the affair, it would in time infallibly have wrecked her. <laughs> One of my favorite phrases from the entire book. Infallibly have wrecked her. Okay, all right. Um, uh, uh, okay. Um, again professional medical opinions, right? Remember, and this, they, they spoke about this before, you know, they, they're worried about what it's going to do to her in her dream, you know, how it's going to affect her in, you know, at, at day and during the day in her nerves and at night in her dreams. Remember, not only are both of these two guys doctors, they're both, you know, they, they, they both specialize in the brain, right? One is, uh, is, is you know, it studies professionally, uh, you know, mental disorder, and the uh, which is Dr. Seward, and the other is a neurologist, right? Uh, I mean, you know, nineteenth-century neurologist. But anyway, he's made a special study of the brain. Um, so they're, they're they're not only doctors; they're specialists in the field. They 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 know what they're talking about, right? They, when they are voicing the party line. It's it's really easy to just start talking about like the Victorian patriarchy and throwing around kind of terms like that. This is not just the Victorian patriarchy. I mean, it's a manifestation of it in a sense, but that but that's not just what's going on here, right? This is uh, this is medical science. This is modern medical science in application, right? Um, but of course, we've already. Uh, had reason not exactly to doubt modern medical science. I mean, I certainly don't think that one can read Bram Stoker as, a, as an anti-science work. Uh, it's not anti-science, but it is anti... It is. It certainly does sort of caution against too confident, too smug a, uh, uh, a sort of reliance upon modern point of views, right? To, to you know, the... The old world has powers too, right? Remember, um, remember Jonathan, uh, the contrast that Jonathan perceived when he was in the the ladies' chamber, when he you know wandered into that different part of the castle, uh, Castle Dracula, and found the ladies' chambers, and and he was struck by the contrast, and he talked about this. I didn't talk about this passage at the time, um, but uh, he was sitting there at the desk, uh, conscious of the fact that he's sitting at the desk that certainly some lady centuries ago must have sat at and, and uh, 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 penned her ill-spelt spe- Ill love letter. Uh, notice Jonathan's assumption that the ladies would have not been able to spell very well. Um, 
Uh, again, I'm not saying there's no bias involved, right? There is. There are stereotypes. Uh, I'm not saying there aren't. Um, but anyway, he, he, the, the thing that he's primarily struck with is the contrast between the old world and the modern world. Um, he comments to himself in his diary, it is 19th century up to date with a vengeance, he says. That is, him sitting and writing his diary in modern shorthand, right? Um, uh, you know, him, the modern 19th century Englishman, sitting and writing in shorthand in his diary, uh, you know, sort of in juxtaposition with this old world, uh, you know, the old world ladies that would have, uh, that would have lived there, um, you know, writing with their quill pens and whatnot. But he immediately says, after that, is 19th century up to date with a vengeance? But, he says, uh, you know, the, uh, it, he, he, he thinks that the old world had and has powers of its own, right? And, of course, it's in that moment foreshadowing of the fact that the, you know, medieval ladies who perhaps used to sit there and write love letters at that desk are still around and right and are coming for him that evening. So um, it's a it's a it's a particularly keen piece of of uh, of, of insight uh, that he has there. Uh, but even of course, though the vampires themselves, Dracula, of course, uh, uh, principally, is you know medieval is a holdover from that old world. Is himself you know still kind of bringing the old world forward. It's you know the book very much resists the sort of the, the, any kind of simplistic contrast between you know the evil old world and the and the good modern world right because at the same time we get this you know what we saw in Jonathan from the very first chapters again as our sort of role model of the sophisticated nineteenth century Englishman in the foreign country sort of feeling superior and looking down on everybody and their superstitions you know and the peasants and everything. Um, and it turns out, of course, that they know a good deal better than he does, and that his modern, uh, his modern scientific perspective doesn't actually uh, help him uh, very much, and in fact gets in his way, as it does very pointedly uh, with Dr. Seward when uh, Van Helsing is attempting uh, to beat the truth into Dr. Seward's head uh, after the first apparent uh, death of uh, of of Lucy. And yes, Carolyn Good, like the sea captain as well. Um, that same kind of, um, the social distinction, as well as the, uh, the, 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 the sort of sophistication, right? He, 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 he's a man of the world, the sea captain, right? He knows better. Um, he thinks he has, you know, the obvious explanation. It must've been the first mate who did it. And then of course he sees that actually the peasant crew who are all dead now, uh, uh, were right. Right. So you notice the pattern there. Gosh, not just sort of thinking past the uh, the the modern medieval stuff there, or the old world, new world stuff. Notice that from the beginning, one of the things that this book has been doing is a depicting and depicting very sort of shamelessly, right? Um, sort of indulging perceptions of class distinctions, right? Jonathan's uh, very you know, self-conscious superiority over the local peasantry, right? Uh, and uh, the captain over the sailors, right? Um, even, you know, there's even a, a sort of a... I mean, she's very kind and she's very polite, but there's even kind of a whiff of 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 it with, I think, anyway, with Mina and Mr. Swales, right? Like, she doesn't quite take him seriously. And she's... Mina is too good to be smug and 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 superior, but um, um, but still. Anyway, so so again, on the one hand, we see Bram Stoker depicting his characters um, very sort of forthrightly asserting that class difference, 
and yet the events of the story undermining that gap, right? Um, and what we see is that over time, Jonathan has taken down many pegs, right? Until he, you know, oh, bless that good, good woman, right? And until when he finally gets there and realizes, no, the peasants were right all along, and I am in their debt, and I am only alive uh, for that for that reason. Uh, so we already have that kind of model. My argument is going to be that we're going to see the same thing with the gender gap that we see with the class gap in this story. Um, that the, on the one hand, Bram Stoker is very forthrightly depicting characters who are very outspoken in their assertions of the social norms of the time, right? That, that, that women can't possibly handle what men could handle, right? Women are to be protected. Women need to be sheltered. It's not just that they should be sheltered. It's not just that it's polite to shelter them. They need to be sheltered because they, they can't physically you know, psychologically, neurologically, they can't handle it, right? It's going to break her nerve, and she could be pregnant. I mean, imagine what could happen, right? The kind of state that she could be in uh, if she were pregnant. So, obviously, we have to shelter her. And he even raises the stakes, in a sense, by having those same people, Van Helsing and Dr. Seward in particular, who assert that gap, right? Right? who say, oh, this is no place for a woman, right? This is no business for a woman. Certainly, you know, I'll, you know, it, it, it would infallibly have wrecked her had she stayed, you know, in our councils. We have to protect her uh, uh, from the vampire and from herself, in a sense, you know, because she's wanting to pursue this. Um, those same people are the very ones who are also saying the things which are sort of most ironic, right? That is, they are the ones who whose own words undermine themselves. I mean, remember that passage we were looking at before, where Van Helsing does this like about face, right? Where in one sentence he's saying, oh, that wonderful Madame Mina, right? Uh, she has a man's brain and a woman's heart. The good God made her for a purpose. Believe you me, when he made that so good combination. And then, boom, next sentence. But we should leave her out, right? Because she's a woman and she can't handle it. Um, so he, he, he just... He doesn't. He, he, even though he himself says she is exceptional, he it seems never even to occur to him to make an exception in her case from that general rule. Even if he's not willing to question the general rule, right? He won't even make an exception for the person that he has already identified as being plainly exceptional. Um. So uh, yeah, and uh, Gerald, I knew somebody was going to ask that, Gerald. Um, uh, Michael says, if Mina were pregnant and Dracula was successful, would she have a baby vampire or be permanently pregnant? I have no, I have not the faintest idea. And Gerald, if there is any one element of this story, uh, like if I had to write like a fan fiction sequel of Dracula, it would totally be about Mina's unborn baby. Uh, um, yeah, Blade, exactly. Just like Blade, Michael. In a sense, that's already been written, right? Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, no, Jennifer, I really don't think that Stephanie Meyer has uh, answered that question uh, to my satisfaction. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah, exactly, Yana. That is this the backstory of Blade, Blade the Daywalker, a film that we're not going to be watching. Though, actually, I count that as among the relatively short list of my uh, my my the vampire movies that I that I like actually I I enjoy Blade sequels were disastrous and much of Blade is really hokey but I there's there there's a lot that I liked about it 
Um, anyway, anyway. We don't know. She's not actually pregnant. Uh, she does. She is going to have a baby, but it's it's going to be born sufficiently later on that Stoker makes it quite clear. Although they're concerned that she might be pregnant because they're you know John, she and Jonathan are married and therefore sexually active, but she's not in fact pregnant. Um, so not an issue. You can speculate about it all you like, but it's not happening, uh, and we don't have to worry about it. Um, Okay, yeah, Carolyn, I just got to that part in Angel, actually, with the uh, the pregnant vampire. But see, but again, that's totally different, right? Because she was already a vampire before she got pregnant, so the whole thing was like a mystery from the be- very beginning. The uh, uh, blade is more um, uh, is 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 really the more the more direct parallel. Um, anyway, okay, sorry. All right, let's focus and, and, and keep moving forward here. So, okay, so we have, this is, you know, in, in, in some ways I, 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 I sort of, I gave us this passage to kind of reassert the baseline, right? Um, and remember, this is the, this is, this is standard. Everybody reading this would be kind of nodding along with this, right? I mean, I, obviously, naturally, right? This is the, you know, you would never, uh, you know, the idea of, like, bring, what, are they going to bring the woman along with them? I mean, is, is Mina going to come, like, with a stake, and, you know, they're going to they're, they're gonna give her a pistol and a, and a crucifix and say, come along to the house? I mean, the whole idea seems sort of, um, sort of absurd, right? Um, okay, now, Jonathan is in a different situation, right? Jonathan doesn't have the same perspective that Dr. Seward and Van Helsing does. On the one hand, he uh, has the same background, right? Has the same framework, but he thinks a little differently. One October, five a.m. So you may remember it's the night of October third that Mina, the big thing with Mina, happens. Um, so this is his, the diary that he writes the morning after he wakes up from uh, their. They, they just the night before they've had their trip um, to, um, uh, to 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 to. Dracula's house, right? And Mina has just been bitten un- unbeknownst to him. 1 October, 5 a.m. I went with the party to the search with an easy mind, for I think I never saw Mina so absolutely strong and well. I am so glad that she consented to hold back and let us men do the work. Somehow it was a dread to me that she was in this fearful business at all. But now that her work is done, and that it is due to her energy and brains and foresight that the whole story is put together in such a way that every point tells, she may well feel that her part is finished, and that she can henceforward leave the rest to us. So you notice Jonathan here, right? Notice, first of all, unlike Van Helsing and Dr. Seward, he doesn't seem to have that kind of split mind, right? We see him kind of struggling with two things. On the one hand, he really, really wants to protect her, right? Um, he, he goes to the search with an easy mind because he would have been really worried had Mina been with him and been going into danger, right? But they, they left her safe back at home, so that's a relief, right? Okay, so on the one hand, he wants to protect her. Totally understandable. And again, you can see that not just his own personal desire to protect the wife that he loves, but also that sort of that sense of, and, and, and it's right that this should be so, right? To let us men do the work, right? Um, let us take on the danger, and we'll let her stay home and be protected, and that's just how it should be, and how I want it to be for her, because she's my wife and I love her, right? So, but but at the same time, that he um, that he has that, uh, that, that, that desire to protect her and shelter her, he also has a full and open appreciation for her, 
Jonathan never loses sight of how exceptional Mina is, right? In Jonathan's defense, he never loses sight of that. Notice how quick he is uh, to say, you know, the, notice the sentence that he's trying to say is, but now that her work is done, she may well feel that her part is finished and she can henceforth leave the rest to us, right? But he can't even say that in his own diary without expanding, right? And that it is due to her energy and brains and foresight that the whole story is put together in such a way that every point tells, right? Uh, he knows that it was her brains that did this. I mean, remember that Dr. Seward talks about how, like, Mina and Jonathan are working together to do all this? Like, yeah he's helping, right? But this is her initiative. We know that it's her initiative because we saw her initiative when she did it, right? Remember, she listens to Dr. Seward's journal and she's like, um, I think this is more important than you realize. There's a lot of stuff in here that's relevant that you probably don't even realize is relevant. Um, and I think if we correlate this by date, we'll uh, understand this a lot better. So I'm going to type this all out and then we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put it together. Jonathan helps, but she's the one who had the idea. She's the one who does the typing. She's the one who does all the thing. Remember in the first few time, few chapters, chapter five and six, when we first met Mina, when she was with Lucy and Whitby before Dracula arrives, um, she talks about how she hopes to help Jonathan. Right? She's practicing her shorthand very assiduously so that she can help Jonathan in all of his works. She uh, she know she's memorized the time to the train tables uh, right to to uh, to Exeter between Exeter and London, just in case Jonathan might need to take a train at any time. She's memorized the freaking timetables so that she knows off the top of her head all of the trains that go to and from just in case Jonathan might ever need help, right? Um, and sometimes, you know, many times I've heard people sort of laugh about how, or, um, you know, people want to, you know, sort of uh, uh, want to, to kind of take umbrage at that. Like, whoa, you know, why should, you know, it's so sad to see Mina being like, oh, I want to be a good assistant to my husband, right? I, 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 and I get that. I do get that. But you notice what really happens, right? I think it's one, it's one problem, I think, that a lot of people have is that they they listen to what people say, but they don't pay attention to what actually happens. And when you look at both what people say and what happens, you see that the picture is not nearly as simple as it looks. So if you just listen to Mina talking, you get the impression that, like, yes, everything is, I am subordinate to my husband and I, I, I hope to serve him and assist him in every possible way. What actually happens He's, she's not his assistant, he's her assistant, right? She's the one who is really in charge. She is obviously the brains uh, of that operation. Now, Jonathan isn't dumb, and he appears to be a good solicitor. Uh, I mean, we don't get much unbiased opinion on that subject. I mean, we get Mina's opinion and uh, Dr. Seward's kind of vague impression, but I'm perfectly willing to accept that Jonathan is, 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 a, is a, a perfectly competent solicitor and an energetic and clever fellow. But he's not Mina. I mean, his, he's, he's, he's smart and he's uh, quick, but his wife is an exceptional very exceptional. Um, she, has a, she has the brain that a man would have were he much gifted, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, good, Gerald. Gerald points out that Dracula thought that Jonathan was competent, and I agree. And, yeah, Nancy, the evidence from his, of, of Peter Hawkins, his mentor, you know, this sort of the, the, the adoption and the making of a partner does all suggest that uh, he, uh, he, he certainly has kind of earned it. Um, but, um, okay, so, so, um, so Jonathan fully appreciates his wife, and that's interesting. Right, he doesn't seem to feel competition with her. He's 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 full of praise for her and wanting her to get credit. So 
he recognizes she is a great asset. I mean, but you see the division in his own mind? Somehow it was a dread to me that she was in this fearful business at all. Which means what? That she's been in their deliberations, that she's been reading all the journals, that she's been doing all this typing. I mean, that she's been her, her involvement so far has been what? Uh, putting this whole story together in such a way that every point tells exactly the thing that he praises her for, right? So he's like, it was a dread to me that she was in this, but um, it was awesome that she was in this, right? So we see, you know, his, he's he's sort of divided there. In the end, he's glad, he's relieved that she's going to be protected, because after all, her safety is the most important thing. Um Look what happens after he sees her. This is now when he sees her after she's been bitten for the first time. I came tiptoe into our own room and found Mina asleep. This is after their trip over to the Count's house, breathing so softly that I had to put my ear down to hear it. She looks paler than usual. I hope the meeting tonight has not upset her. I am truly thankful that she is to be left out of our future work and even of our deliberations. Remember, that's exactly what Mina said. I'm afraid that if I don't go along with this, they'll even leave me out of their deliberations. Right? That's exactly what she was afraid of. She foresaw that. It is too great a strain for a woman to bear. I did not think so at first, but I know better now. Right? He's been... I didn't think so at first. Remember what both Mina and Jonathan have said on several occasions. From way back in chapter 5 and 6, we learn about Mina's concept about marriage. Right? Um, that a husband and wife should always tell each other everything. That there should be complete confidence between husband and wife. Um, we can see, again, even in that sort of uh, cute and potentially cloying stuff about learning shorthand to help her husband, we can see this like, we're going to be partners, right? Partners working together. Um, this was Jonathan. This was Mina's perspective. This was Jonathan's perspective. Um, that sort of assumption, this is man's work and women shouldn't be involved, was not part of their outlook before. I didn't think so before, he says. But I know better now. He's been instructed by people of superior knowledge, right? Fortunately, there are these, like, world-renowned physicians and neurologists with him who can explain to him that, gosh, you know, women can't really handle this, right? So, fortunately, Jonathan has been enlightened from his previously unorthodox point of view on women. You know, that they should be partners with men and work together side by side. Uh, therefore, I'm glad that it is settled, there may be things which would frighten her to hear. Yeah, I know, like the whole thing that she typed, maybe. But anyway, it could she she could get frightened. Who knows? She's a woman, you know, and the doctors tell me that this happens to women. And yet, to conceal them from her might be worse than to tell her if once she suspected that there was any concealment. Yeah, but then again, it's you know he's he's recognizing this has to change our relationship, right? Um, she's gonna. Is it gonna distress her more to hear about scary vampire stuff? Or is it going to distress her more to feel that she is no longer in her husband's confidence, right? Jonathan is very conscious of that choice there. Henceforth, our work is to be a sealed book to her, till at least such time as we can tell her that all is finished, and the world, and the earth free from a monster of the netherworld. I dare say it will be difficult to begin to keep silence after such confidence as ours, but I must be resolute, and tomorrow I shall keep dark over tonight's doings, and shall refuse to speak of anything that has happened. I rest on the sofa so as not to disturb her. Um, uh, even like the cute thoughtfulness of that last sentence, I mean, it's I, I find it impossible not to find Jonathan adorable and charming. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, his his 
attachment to Mina and respect for Mina to be really, um, uh, to, to be, to be, to be admirable and adorable. But you see, again, there's the things that people say, right? I know better now. And then there's what happens, right? And what we already see happening, this is the first moment where we can already see the horrible irony that's setting in, right? Um, she looks paler than usual, he says. Of course she's paler than usual. She's had a bunch of her blood taken out of her by Dracula. He doesn't know that, right? What is he? So instead, you see what conclusion he's drawing? Ah, see, the doctors were right. Look, it's already telling on her, right? She's been under strain because she's been in this business with us to this point. Uh, uh, you know, I hope that the meeting didn't upset her, right? Look, she's so pale, right? The horrible... Horrible. I mean, like the knife-twisting irony that Bram Stoker builds and builds and builds through this whole section, that the very evidence that they are dead wrong, horribly wrong, in the conclusion that they drew about, about protecting Mina, the evidence of that they interpret to be confirmation that they were right, until the horrible, horrible truth is revealed. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and interesting. Nancy Fosberg notes that it's curious that nobody's worried about its effect on him after his breakdown and all. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, you know, those women, you got to be careful because women's nerves can't handle it. Like, it's like, which one of us has had a nervous breakdown lately, right? I mean, it's, yeah, no, exactly. That's, um, uh, the evidence of the, um, um, and it's not just that. It's not just that he has showed, you know, weak nerves. I mean, like, weak nerves. Like, I mean, God, this seems a little unfair, right? I mean, the poor guy went through a lot. But um, I'm not trying to cheapen Jonathan. But, but, uh, uh, but Nancy, you're right. When he was losing it, Mina was the rock, right? And she, you know, read the journal and figured everything out and basically, you know, got him, you know, figured out essentially how to get him healed, basically. Um yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, yeah. Carrie Gross says, the misinterpretations are so rampant through the book. He uses the assumptions of culture so well in how he sets up these situations before pulling the rug out from under us. Yes, and Carrie, this is the most horrible, horrible moment of rug pulling in the whole book when, the, when, when this pleasant little patriarchal, um, you know, uh, uh, fiction that they have built up for themselves, we are doing what is best in protecting little Mina, right, um, is just awfully, horribly um, revealed to them. Um, okay. This is Mina. <clears throat> it is strange to me... Oh, yeah, this is what I already, had already referred to this passage. It is strange to me to be kept in the dark as I am today after Jonathan's full confidence for so many years, to see him manifestly avoid certain matters, and those the most vital... <clears throat> excuse me. The most vital of all. This morning I slept late after the fatigues of yesterday, and though Jonathan was late too, he was the earlier. He spoke to me before he went out, never more sweetly or tenderly, but he never mentioned a word of what had happened in the, in the visit to the Count's house. And yet he must have known how terribly anxious I was. Poor dear fellow. I suppose it must have distressed him even more than it did me. They all agreed that it was best that I should not be drawn further into this awful work, and I acquiesced. 
Mina thinks this is a bad idea, right? We've already seen the passage in which she said, it did not seem to me good, right? Um, but she goes along with it, right? This was being left behind. She wanted to go. She wanted to go to the Count's house, right? That's what she thought would be best and wisest. She agrees, right? She gives in. Um, her will is still compliant, but her voice is still dissenting, right? Um, she, She's like... On the one hand, there was this, like, equality, state of equality that Jonathan and I were working under, right? And it's hard to lose that. Um, and notice how she is feeling towards him. You know, Nancy, it's almost like she shares your concerns, right? Um, um, she worries about how distressed he must have been to think that she was anxious when he was away. Right? I mean, she's always, she's always, she's always thinking of him. Um, it's very charming. But of course, you see also his thoughts for her, his desire to protect her, his solicitousness for her well-being, mental and physical, is reciprocated by her. She feels the same way about him. Right? She's worried about if he's going to be okay, and he must be distressed, and I hope he'll be all right. Um, that's normal. That's reciprocal. Right? Uh, what's not reciprocal is the assumption that because she's a woman, she can't handle it, right? Um, that, again, that piece of medical knowledge, now I know, you know, I know better now, right? That, his, that, that uh, medical knowledge has trumped uh, his previous convictions, previous experience in his relationship with, uh, with Mina. Um, the irony just grows and grows and grows. This is uh, Van Helsing speaking at the end of their trip to Carfax. So far, he said, our night has been eminently successful. No harm has come to us, such as I feared might be, and yet we have ascertained how many boxes are missing. More than all do I rejoice that this, our first and perhaps our most difficult and dangerous step, has been accomplished without the bringing thereinto of our most sweet Madame Mina, or troubling her waking or sleeping thoughts with, sigh, with sights and sounds and smells of horror which she might never forget. Oh! What a good thing that Mina has been left back safe and sheltered from the horrors of this night. I mean, it smelled awful in there. And if she had been exposed to that smell, who knows? That would have probably lingered with her forever. And imagine the psychological scars of the terrible smell over in the house and the sights and sounds of the dust and the rats. I mean, whew, right? Meanwhile, she's getting bitten by Dracula, Nancy. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, this is, uh, I, I mean, again, the, the more, the, as I said, the irony just continues to grow and grow and grow. Like, you know, the more they, um, notice, just notice how much attention Stoker draws to this. Not just the oft-repeated convictions, right? We should protect her, and this is definitely for the best, and she's a woman and can't handle this. But then, again and again, just pounding into our faces the irony here, right? It's a good thing she was home safe, right? I'm glad we did the right thing by leaving her home. I mean, I don't think Stoker could possibly make it clearer that they did the wrong thing, right? That by going along with the sort of the traditional cultural wisdom, even the traditional medical wisdom of the time, they were wrong. They've done wrong. That that's not how it should be. Jonathan again. Mina is fast asleep and looks a little too pale. Her eyes look as though she'd been crying. 
Poor dear, I've no doubt it frets her to be kept in the dark, and it may make her doubly anxious about me and the others. But it is best as it is. It is better to be disappointed and worried in such a way now than to have her nerve broken. See, that's medical speak, right? He, that's what he's been convinced of. This specter of, like, a broken-nerved Mina, you know, uh, infallibly wrecked, right? Oh, dear. The doctors were quite right to insist on her being kept out of this dreadful business. I must be firm, for on me this particular burden of silence much must rest. I shall not ever enter on the subject with her under any circumstances. And if if ever anybody in Dracula says, I shall not ever enter on the subject for any so you know he's going to be talking about it within like two chapters. Indeed, it may not be a hard task after all, for she has herself become reticent on the subject and has not spoken of the Count or his doings ever since we told her of our decision. Right? So, again, he's he feels confirmed. We've, we've done the right thing. Right? You can tell. Um, I think, okay, so I was worried that she was going to be really distressed, and, and she clearly is distressed, because we're leaving her in the dark, and I, I know that's hard for her, but on some level, I think she, she must appreciate it, right? Why? Because she doesn't, she doesn't even seem to want to talk about the Count, right? She hasn't spoken of the Count at all, ever since we told her of her decision, a.k.a. the time she got bitten by the vampire and entered his mental control and can't talk about him anymore. Oh, see the irony, right? See what Stoker has done? The fate to which the men voluntarily doomed Mina, you will not speak of the vampire, becomes literally true under the power of the vampire. Right? When Dracula comes in and bites her and she becomes she comes under his control, and remember the way in which Dracula's relationship with her is ultimately going to be manifested in that explicitly uh, perverted marital way, right? He's going to put himself in role of husband, right? Role of, you know, he's, he's going to adopt this distinctly patriarchal uh, uh, relationship with her, right? Um, anyway, so he makes literally and horribly true what the, so their actions are in this way sort of perversely confirmed by Dracula. And here, once again, he is interpreting a symptom of her sufferings caused by their wrong decision. He's interpreting those symptoms as proof that they made the right decision. Right? Awful. Awful. Just awful. Um, this is right after um, the the horrible vampire baptism of blood thing. Um she shuddered and was silent, holding down her head on her husband's breast. When she raised it, his, his white night robe was stained with blood where her lips had touched and where the thin open wound in her neck had sent forth drops. The instant she saw it, she drew back with a low wail and whispered amidst choking sobs, Unclean! Unclean! I must touch him or kiss him no more! Oh, that it should be I! That, oh, that it should... Okay, sorry. Oh, that it should be that it is I who am now his worst enemy, and whom he may have most cause to fear. To this he spoke out resolutely. Nonsense, Mina. It is a shame to me to hear such a word. I would not hear it of you, and I shall not hear it from you. May God judge me by my deserts, and punish me with more bitter suffering than even this hour, if by any act or will of mine anything ever come between us. Okay, bunch of stuff going on, going on here. Right. First, look at his words here. Right, um, Jonathan understands. Right, 
Jonathan recognizes this is their fault. This is the con this this what has happened to Mina is the direct consequence of their isolation of her and they're keeping her out of danger, right? Um, and he swears that nothing, uh, 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 nothing will ever, he will never let anything come between them again as he let, essentially, the medical opinion of Dr. Seward and Dr. Van Helsing come between them before, right? Never again. Why ever let anything come between us? Oh, dear, Jonathan, you have a surprise in store for you. Um... But look at something else. This depiction of Mina, unclean, unclean, I must touch or kiss him no more. Is this the ravings of an over-emotional woman? No. Look at her second sentence, right? Her first sentence is an emotional response, right? I must, you know, unclean, I must touch or kiss him no more. Oh, that it should be that it is I who am now his worst enemy and whom he may have most cause to fear. Remember what Jonathan's first words were when he was wakened up, right? He's held comatose, right? He's held in a stupor by Dracula. When the other men wake him up, um, and he's looking around, and Mina's in tears, and there's blood, and, and he didn't even see Dracula, right? I mean, he knows that it was him, but um, he wakes up, and he said, remember, his words are, what does this mean? What does this blood mean? Right? That's what he keeps asking. Notice, Mina knows. Mina immediately knows what this means, right? Um, and she figures out something that it's going to take everybody else a chapter or two to sort out, right? Oh, that it should be that it is I who am now his worst enemy and whom he may have most cause to fear. Um, she knows he might say, nothing will ever come between us again. And she's thinking, you're wrong. Something's already between us, right? Um while he's thinking, I'm never going to let this happen again, she's thinking, it's too late now. Right? Um, I'm now your worst enemy. She knows she can be manipulated by the vampire. She knows what's likely to happen. Right? Um, that she is going to be used against him. They cannot be partners anymore. They cannot be working together anymore because she's a risk to him and she knows it. He doesn't know it but she knows it, and she understands what it means. And he's like, nonsense! It is a shame to me to hear such a word. No, Jonathan, it's not nonsense, right? As usual, again, he's not dumb, but her mind is working many times faster than his, right? Even in this moment. So again, notice how even, even here, at a moment like this, Stoker is actually resisting sort of the normal stereotypes. Mina's not swooning, she's not screaming, she's not fainting, she's not, um, you know, she's, 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 she doesn't even any brandy, right? Do they, they probably bring her brandy, right? Because they, I can't remember if they do or not. I don't think they do. Um, but I mean, anyway, the point is, she, um, she's not responding like a sort of stereotypical Victorian woman, right? Um, we see in Mina's character, certainly, uh, Stoker actually resisting it. He invokes that stereo, that kind of stereotype lots of times. But again, it's not what actually happens when we actually look at what occurs and how the characters behave. Um, well, okay, after this, we've learned our lesson, right? 
When the question began to be discussed as to what should be our next step, the very first thing we decided was that Mina should be in full confidence, that nothing of any sort, no matter how painful, should be kept from her. She herself agreed as to its wisdom, right? Yeah, I mean, she's like, yeah, it was a dumb idea to keep me in the dark all along. And it was pitiful to see her so brave and yet so sorrowful, and in such a depth of despair. There must be no concealment, she said. Alas, we have had too much already. The closest, that's the closest Mina ever comes to saying, I told you so, right? I was right, you were wrong. That's, that's the closest, right? We have had too much already, dumbos. And besides, there is nothing in all the world that can give me more pain than I have already endured, than I suffer now. Whatever may happen, it must be of new hope or of new courage to me. Of course, notice, of course, there's sort of a further indictment of especially the doctors there. But notice how profoundly she has proven them wrong, right? It's, it, this is not just a question of, we think the wisest course would be to keep Mina in the dark. But it turns out that wasn't actually the wisest course, right? That certainly does happen, but it's way more than that, right? She could never possibly handle this. It would infallibly wreck her. Infallibly. Infallibly it's going to wreck her, right? To do stuff like go over to the house where it smells awful and there are like rats and maybe the vampire's going to attack and there'll be a fight. Who knows, right? She couldn't handle that. And what she is handling now, and successfully handling, not only without being wrecked in her nerves, um, but actually handling it better and more competently than any of the men involved. Um, in fact, Mina is almost the only one in this entire story who never has like a completely emotional breakdown. She cries a couple times, right? Um, but she, she, but even there, she just kind of comforts herself. Um, almost everybody needs somebody else to kind of be there for them at some point, right? Van Helsing has his, his hysterical moment. Uh, Arthur has his hysterical moment. Quincy Morris even kind of like mists up at one point, which for a Texan is like super hysterical, right? Um, uh, so, um, anyway, it, it's, it's, um, she handles it. She is not infallibly wrecked. She experiences something a hundred times worse than could possibly have happened had she accompanied them, and yet she's not wrecked, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, good. Okay, um, Okay, so we're going to keep her in consciousness. All right, so they've learned their lesson at least, right? So now, having shown that they were wrong to go along with this sort of, you know, the cultural norms, right? Um, and that actually kind of Mina and Jonathan with their whole husband and wife should act in partnership as equals thing was kind of right. Um, now we seem to have sort of proved the point, right? That that's the direction that Bram Stoker is pushing things. Um, but wait, there's more. Uh, so this is the first dawn uh, after the uh, uh, the first dawn after the, uh, Mina is uh, has the vampire bam baptism. In two or three minutes later, Van Helsing was in the room. Remember, she wakes Jonathan up and tells him to go get Van Helsing. Was in the room in his dressing gown, and Mr. Morris and Lord Godalming were with Dr. Seward at the door asking questions. When the professor saw Mina, a smile, a positive smile ousted the anxiety of his face, he rubbed his hands as he said, Oh, my dear Madame Mina, this is indeed a change. See, friend Jonathan, we have got our dear Madame Mina, as of old, back to us today. 
Then turning to her, he said cheerfully, And what am I to do for you? For at this hour you do not want me for nothings. I want you to hypnotize me, she said. Do it before the dawn, for I feel that then I can speak, and speak freely. Be quick, for the time is short. Notice here, again, not content with saying we shouldn't separate, we shouldn't isolate the woman, right? We shouldn't say the woman is weaker and doesn't have a place here. We're all men and we can deal, right? Not content with that. Bram Stoker goes further than that, right? Um, and says, and shows actually the woman is the one, she's in charge. From here on out, as you'll see in the last three, well, spoiler alert, Mina's pretty much driving the bus. I mean, there's, there, there are almost, there are very, very few insights that anybody has that, um, uh, that aren't Mina's, basically. Van Helsing has one or two moments, um, but, uh, but Mina is the one who has almost every sort of intellectual breakthrough for the rest of the book, including this one. They already have reason to believe that at dawn and dusk, um, that those are times of particular freedom for his victims. The f observations about Renfield should have shown that there was something significant about noon and dawn and dusk, right? Um, but Mina figures it out. And she's the one who says, okay, at that time, hypnotize me, and I'll be able to tell you stuff because my mind will be free then. It's not now, and I can't say c certain things. Okay? But then... Um, the, yeah, Sarah Quincy does show his good sense, right? Um, and I, Sarah, I don't think there's a single line that Quincy Morris has that I don't love. I absolutely love Quincy Morris. He's just the coolest guy ever. Um, uh, I love his contribution to the, to the discussion when he's like, we should bring rifles, right? What wouldn't we have given for a repeater apiece, right? Uh, <laughs> I just absolutely love when um, um, uh, when Quincy is like, let's bring more guns. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, but yeah, Jennifer, you're right. It is interesting that she's aware of hypnosis. It is. Um, she's not only she's not only sort of naturally bright, she's, 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 she's educated, she's, she's sophisticated. This is, this is a, a pretty smart thing uh, that, she's, uh, that she's thought of. Remember the references to hypnotism that Van Helsing and Dr. Seward made when they were talking, you know, like as doctors, as former teacher and student, this is in their field, right? Um, but Mina knows about it and thinks about, um, you know, and uh, thinks about it as a uh, um, uh, as, you know, applying to this uh, situation. Um, now, Carrie is wondering if, you know, is saying it, she, uh, is wondering if perhaps uh, Van Helsing is being a little patronizing here. I, I wouldn't say patronizing, affectionate, right? Notice what he's doing is trying to reassure Jonathan. They're all worried about Jonathan at this point, right? Because it's pretty clear, again, see, Nancy, as you were suggesting before, of the two of them, Mina's bearing up a whole heck of a lot better than Jonathan at this point, right? With the stress and the horror and the nerves. Um, one of them has gone gray overnight and the other one has not, right? Um, so, I, I, Carrie, I take his tone there, um, Van Helsing's tone, as being designed to, to, to reassure Jonathan, right? Um, uh, we have got our dear Madame Mina as of old back to us today. Right? Isn't this a good sign, Jonathan? Isn't this hopeful? 
right? But of course, notice at the same time, it shows Van Helsing's, I won't say cluelessness, because that's a little strong, um, but um, it's almost like he doesn't even understand the significance of what he's saying. Yes, yes, uh, right around the dawn, you do have your dear Madame Mina as of old back to you for a narrow window, right? That's how it works, right? Come on, put it together, Van Helsing, right? It's, it's like he doesn't even recognize the, uh, the significance of that. Um, but then, of course, there comes to be a problem, right? Again, not getting... So, so not content with showing that they made the wrong decision in the first place, not content with showing that, again, she's not only should be accepted as one among equals, but that she is actually really in a leadership position among them, or deserves a leadership position among them, not even content with that, he, uh, he, he, he kind of twists the knife one more time to really bring the point home. This is... Uh, uh, Dr. Seward, speculating. I see only one immediate difficulty. I know it by instinct, rather than reason. (laughs) Good, because uh, his reason has not really been at the top of the heap. We shall all have to speak frankly. That is, you know, when they get together to meet to decide their plans and what they're going to do. And yet I fear that in some mysterious way poor Mrs. Harker's tongue is tied. I know that she forms conclusions of her own, and from all that has been I can guess how brilliant and true they must be. But she will not or cannot give them utterance. I have mentioned this to Van Helsing, and he and I are to talk it, uh, to talk it over when we are alone. I suppose it is some of that horrid poison which has got into her veins beginning to work. The Count had his own purposes when he gave her what Van Helsing called the vampire's baptism of blood. Well, there may be a poison that distills itself out of good things. In an age when the existence of tomains is a mystery, we should not wonder at anything. One thing I know that if my instinct be true regarding poor Mrs. Harker's silences, then there is a terrible difficulty, an unknown danger, in the work before us. I dare The same power that compels her silence may compel her speech. I dare not think further, for so I should in my thoughts dishonor a noble woman. Um, I, uh, I absolutely love the way in which he has tried to reverse himself in his own mind, right? It's like he recognizes that he made a mistake, right? Notice him first doing kind of like Jonathan did, right? Emphasizing even in his own thinking how exceptional Mina is, right? Um, uh, I can but guess how... I, I can guess how brilliant and how true they must be, right? Um, that is, you know, her, her ideas, her conclusions. And also notice his his resistance. You know, Mr. Like, in, it would in time infallibly have wrecked her, is now saying, I dare not think further. Right? I, I, I don't even want to entertain the idea that maybe we have to exclude her or maybe we can't trust her because I wouldn't want to uh, dishonor a noble woman in my thoughts. Um, um, yeah, yeah. But um, anyway... Do you see what's happening? See the reversal? I said before that they were backtracking, right? They say, we must, for her own good, keep Mina out. And then afterwards, they're like, 
Okay, so we've had too much concealment already. That kind of backfired in an epic way. So let's go. That let's let's make sure there should be no concealment. Anything, no matter how painful, um, everything must be, you know, shared with everybody at all times. Right? No problem. So we're never going to make that mistake again. And now she is silent. She is isolated from them. Right? So they see that she just as they tried to keep her silent and push her away now what what are the consequences of their trying to keep her silent and push her away now she is enforcedly silent and being pulled away and they can't trust her because she's under the mental control of the count and that power which commands her silence might command her speech so now ironically they are back to the same position having to exclude her from their councils. Um, and it's like the punishment, right? Um, the punishment for... Um, uh, the punishment for their excluding her in the first place is the enforced exclusion afterwards. It's almost like, you know, their wish is sort of perversely granted. Um, had you kept her with you and valued her appropriately and not tried to coddle her but respected her in the first place, uh, sh- you would still have the benefit, the full benefit, of her counsel and help. But you forfeited that help. And as a consequence, now when you want it, you can have it, right? Um, and again, it just seems, when you look again, not at what people say, but at what actually happens can see how Stoker keeps coming back and back to this thing. So now the most terrible tragedy is that now they lose her. Now they can't have her help. Now they can't... um, Now they're forced to do what they used to think was the right thing to do. What their society would tell them is the right thing to do. So they've been sort of sentenced. The, The warped, perverted control of the vampire forces them to do what their whole society thinks is pretty much the right thing to do. And that seems like an indictment on what their whole society uh, uh, tells them to do, right? But, of course, fortunately, Mina herself has already worked this out. She has absented herself from this conference specifically because she doesn't want to hear what's going on, because she knows if she does hear uh, that there is a chance that she could reveal it. She knew from the moment she saw the blood on Jonathan's shirt, right? Um, oh, that it is I, you know, that am his wor- that his, 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 his worst enemy and, you know, uh, and, and, and from whom he has most to fear, right? She knows how she could be used against all of them and against Jonathan. Look at his reaction when she makes him promise not to tell her, right? Promise to keep me in the dark. Promise me, promise to exclude me from all your counsels. Don't tell me anything. Don't even give me a hint. Right? Exactly. Just the exact reversal of what happened before. I promise, I said. And for a moment she looked supremely happy, though to me all happiness for her was denied by the red scar on her forehead. She said, Promise me that you will not tell me anything of the plans formed for the campaign against the Count, not by word or inference or by implication, not at any time whilst this remains to me. And she solemnly pointed to the scar. I saw that she was in earnest, and I said solemnly, I promise. And as I said it, I felt that from that instant a door had shut between us. Again, see the consequence. Remember Jonathan's deliberations, right? 
we're partners, we've always worked together, that seems right, but, oh, but I know better now, I'm going to shut that door, right? It feels weird to shut a door between us, but I, I think it's right for her safety, I'm going to lock her in, and she'll be safe. Oh, except she's not, and now, now you have to close the door, right? Um, Mr. I will never let anything go between us again, short-sighted, right? As a consequence of his closing that door before, now that door has to be shut and locked. And Mina knows. Mina understands. Um, one last one. Her final realization, right? You must take me with you. I am safer with you, and you shall be safer too. Even when she said, not only did he not think of it himself, even when she says it, Van Helsing is doesn't get it. But why, dear Madam Mina, you know that your safety is our solemnest duty. We go into danger to which you are, or maybe, more liable than any of us from, from circumstances, things that have been. He paused, embarrassed. As she replied, she raised her finger and pointed to her forehead. I know. I love that. Right? Like, okay, mister, dancing around the facts to spare my fragile female nerves, right? I know the problem. Right? Believe me. I, know, I understand the things that have been. Um, I may not be able again. I'm sorry, I can tell you now, whilst the sun is coming up, I may not be able again. I know that when the Count wills me, I must go. I know that if he tells me to come in secret, I must come by wile, by any device to hoodwink even Jonathan. Um, she understands now the control that Dracula has over her and how that can be used. She, uh, she guesses at it better um, than they do. She understands it more clearly, uh, and she sees the consequences, right? So you have to bring me with you. So now, okay, and it's like the final step, right? Um, not only do you have to isolate me, before you wanted to leave me behind and isolate me. Now, you still have to isolate me, but you also have to take me with her because you can't leave me behind because I'm not safe if you leave me behind. I'm still not safe. I wasn't safe the first time. I'm still not safe, and you're not safe, right? Again, a reversal. Um, it's the way that Bram Stoker brings all of this stuff back, the way that he flips things around, the way that he turns this into this, like, almost purgatorial experience. Um, let me explain for a second what I mean by that. Because um, it's, a, it's a complicated metaphor, but I actually, it seems to me almost exactly right. Um, I, it kind of expresses my sense of this stuff better than I, than I think I can in any other way. Um, if you read Dante, uh, the Divine Comedy, uh, the, the souls in hell and the souls in purgatory are both in torment. But there's a very important difference between their torments. The torments of the people in hell, of the souls in hell, are, those torments are the sort of uncontrolled continuation of the sins that they experienced in life. So again, it's like, uh, you know, as it says in the New Testament, um, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, well, anyways, like the, the, they, God is, you know, the, they're cast into outer darkness, you know, um, they are, they're, 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 they're being allowed to pursue their own choice, right? So you choose to give in to lust, you choose to submit to the whirlwind of your passions and what happens to you in hell, you're buffeted around by these hot winds of passion for all eternity. It's just sort of a continuation and amplification of, uh, of the, the, the sin that they committed in life. In purgatory, people are suffering too, but the sufferings are 
not a um, uh, a a continuation of the sin. They're a correction of the sin. So if you were proud, right? If you're guilty of the sin of pride, then you go around with a carrying a, a huge boulder on your shoulders so that it stoops you down, so that you can't raise yourself up in pride. It forces you to bow in humility, right? And of course, to look at the uh, the stories that are uh, that are depicted on the ground, on the path that you're going, the edifying stories uh, to learn to see the examples of uh, of, of of fallen pride. Um, again, so the punishment uh, is not just saying uh, this is uh, you know uh, you chose to do this, and I'm just going to let you at it. Right, and it's going to be amplified, and you're going to suffer. Uh, you're going to suffer the, the 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 torments which you yourself chose throughout eternity in purgatory. Um, we're going to take the thing that you did wrong, and we're going to sort of like reverse it and put it in order to correct it. Right? Um, they learn from this. Right? I mean, it's it seems almost like a kind of purgatorial punishment that they're experiencing here. It's like the, for the sin of going along with the social marginalization of women and believing that, you know, Mina as woman was lesser and more vulnerable than they, and, you know, making the choice to, you know, sort of disrespect her and isolate her, uh, even though they meant it, they had good motivations and they were just trying to protect her and all that stuff, they, uh, uh, now they're destined to learn from that, right? They, 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 they have to repeat that, but it, again, it's not just amplified. It's reversed and turned around so that now they, they can see perfectly well, right? Every moment here brings home to them again and again what are the, the, the results of their choices, right? They chose wrong, and this is what happened because of it, but not just that. It's not just that they tried to protect her and it backfired terribly. That would be bad enough, right? Had she just been killed or something, right? But it's different than that. It's more pointed than that. Um, they are continuing... They have this uh, this separation from Mina reinstituted, reapplied to them, but in this sort of enforced and backwards way which which makes them aware, which makes them conscious every minute of the day of exactly what they did wrong and why it was wrong before they're forced to relive that again and again until they're really, really sorry. And hopefully, uh, uh, Sarah, yes, they'll be purged of their sins eventually. Note, of course, I'm not literally saying that this is a purgatorial thing, right? That Bram Stoker is trying to say that they're having their sins removed. I'm just saying uh, it's, the, it's, it's, it's not merely a punishment, right? Um, it's, uh, it's, there's a lesson here. And that lesson, I think, is a lesson for us as readers to observe as well. And this is why, I mean, of course, I was being a little bit tongue-in-cheek when I was saying that I think that Bram Stoker is a feminist. I think that's probably a little bit overambitious of a conclusion. But I look at this, and I say, you know, I would say pretty confidently, if somebody tried to read this book and say, see, Bram Stoker just, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, he, he, he totally you know, just sort of shows evidence of and supports, you know, Victorian mores and stereotypes. Um, and I've heard lots of people go off, you know, again and again about the marginalization of women. And, and I mean, it's, it's easy. And the thing is, it's easy to pull quotes. I mean, you can prove it, easily prove it. 
And I find this, other, you know, this is one of the things, remember I told you I taught Dracula in English 101 all the time, right? So I've assigned a lot of first semester freshmen, uh, college freshmen, papers on Dracula. And let me tell you, if you want to write a paper in which you say, Dracula, or Dracula, Bram Stoker believes that uh, women are inferior to men, right? If that's your thesis, and you go to this book and you look around for quotations to support that thesis, you'll find them. Easy. Absolutely no problem at all, right? That's a super, super easy thesis to prove. This is, of course, why, little, uh, little English composition spoiler here, this is exactly why I think that coming up with a thesis and looking around for proof is a horrible way to write papers, and you end up proving nothing and just kind of... It's this uh, really pointless circular exercise. Never, ever do that, by the way, if you can avoid it most of the way. And I know many of you were taught to write papers that way. That's what you do, right? First you come up with a thesis, and then you dig around for support, and then you restate your thesis, and Bob's your uncle. You've written a paper, right? I am here to tell you, if you did that and were taught that way, you've been completely wasting your time, and it's utterly pointless. Um, anyway, um, uh <laughs> But I digress. Let us let, let, let me not get too caught up in a lecture, or rather a rant, on English composition. Um, the point is, again, you can easily prove it. So people do that. People, you know, people very confidently, you know, sort of make statements like that. It's easy to say, like, "Oh, see, look here, Bram Stoker's the Victorian patriarchy all over," right? No, it's not. It's really not. There's something really different going on here. Um, and I'm not saying that he's a rebel. Again, I'm not saying he's a, he's a, he's actually would qualify, you know, any modern person's definition, you know, as any modern person's definition of feminist. Um, but is, does Bram Stoker show that he is resistant to his society's assumptions about women? Heck yeah. Yeah, I think that's kind of provable. Actually, I kind of hope I have proven it to you, uh, at least uh, at least some. Um, anyway, okay, all right. I spent almost the entire class on that, but that's okay. It was totally worth it. Uh, let's look at a few other things. Um, Minas Scar. We just looked at Minas Scar. Um, that is, we we just been uh, you know we've a couple passage in which uh, uh, references have been made, and she's pointing to it significantly. Um, anybody think that Mi you know that Mina being branded by the host was a little harsh? Anybody ever feel that way? I, I I mean I know some people respond that way to the book that it's like, gosh, man, Mina, poor Mina gets um, uh, you know gets the short end of the stick here, right? She didn't do anything wrong, and now she's all outcast and unclean before God, right? And anyone think God's being a little harsh on Mina here, right? What's well, uh, Let's uh, let, let's let's look how this happened. On your forehead, I touch this piece of sacred wafer in the name of the Father, the Son, and there was a fearful scream which almost froze our hearts to hear. As he had placed the wafer on Mina's forehead, it had seared it, had burned into the flesh as though it had been a piece of white hot metal. My poor darling's brain had told her the significance of the fact as quickly as her nerves received the pain of it, and the two so overwhelmed her that her overwrought nature had its voice in that dreadful scream. But the words to her thought came quickly. The echo of the scream had not ceased to ring on the air when there came the reaction, and she sank to her knees on the floor in an agony of abasement. Pulling her beautiful hair over her face as the leper of old his mantle, she wailed out, 
unclean, unclean. Even the Almighty shuns my polluted flesh. I must bear this mark of shame upon my forehead until the judgment day. Ouch, right? I mean, harsh? That seems harsh, right? I mean, it totally, it totally seems harsh. Um, uh, yeah, um, yeah, Mark Ingram says it sounds like the, the, uh, the Mark of Cain. Yeah, yeah. Um, some, I'm not sure I'd, I'd go with, I mean, she's marked, right? Um, not exactly like Cain. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, Yana, as you say, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not like she had anything, she did anything to deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> Arthur and Yana are making, a are making Harry Potter jokes. No, it's not in the shape of a lightning bolt. Uh, no, she's not a horcrux now. No, no, no. Um, it's a sign of condemnation, right? I mean, she has been rejected. She's been burned, actually, right? I mean, talk about being kicked out of the body of Christ. She's burned by the body of Christ, right? I mean, she's been she's been rejected, not in the way like not not even like a leper is rejected from society. She's been rejected, you know, like um like an antigen is rejected by an antibody, right? I mean, it's 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 bad. It's bad. Um, and Bram Stoker emphasizes this, right? We come back to this several times. It's not like he's trying to kind of hope we don't notice that, right? Dr. Seward again. Oh, that I could give any idea of the scene, of that sweet, sweet, good, good woman in all her radiant beauty of her youth and animation with the red scar on her forehead, of which she was conscious and which we saw with grinding of our teeth remembering whence and how it came, her loving kindness against our grim hate, her tender faith against all our fears and doubting, and we, knowing so that so far as symbols went, she, with all her goodness and purity and faith, was outcast from God. Yeah, gosh, that seems awful. Doesn't that seem unjust, right? I mean, this seems disproportionate, this seems... um. Uh, this seems uh, this seems this seems harsh. Um, why? Yeah, Veronica says it's like biblical possession. The victim doesn't choose to be possessed. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it is like that in some way. I mean, of course, there's a there's there's the you know we've seen the the demon stuff, right? There's there's a there's there's a direct parallel there in some sense. Um, but um, but even there, I would say Veronica actually, that's even kind of worse, right? That is, um, a demoniac, right? A demon-possessed person, a, you know, a demonized person in the New Testament, um, is not, like, personally rejected by God explicitly, right? Um, they might be under the control of and be used as the mouthpiece of the demons, um, but there's we don't get that kind of indication that like they themselves are personally condemned, right? With Mina, again, it's, you know, she is outcast from God, right? There it is, right? Despite the fact that she's you know with you know the loving kindness, the tender faith, the you know the sweet sweet good good, you know, right? I mean, it's, despite all that, she's she's outcast. So, so 
why. Um, again, what I want to do here is 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 sort of point out. Um, Jennifer, you were asking before, what do I do instead of saying, come up with a thesis and prove it, right? You know, go through and find evidence to support your thesis. Um, you can always find evidence to support pretty much any cockamamie thesis you can come up with. Come up with a, um, I, I, here's a fun uh, party game. Um, take a book, write a whole bunch of random, bizarre theses, you know, any idea, any concept, any statement about the book. Uh, put them in a hat, mix them up, pull them out, and prove them. You can do it. Just like choose a random thesis and prove it about a book. Um, uh, you know, y it's easy. You just have to find the right quotes, right? And take them, uh, you know, put them in the right context, right? No problem. Um, so what do you do? What do you do instead, right? Well, okay, so take this question, right? So say you're reading the book and you're troubled by this point. You know, and you're like, gosh, a little harsh, What's he saying theologically here, right? I mean, goodness, is he actually saying that God is unjust? Is that the point that Bram Stoker is making? What, how are we, how do we know, what evidence do we have for how we as readers are, like, supposed to be interpreting this, right? Um, do we conclude that Bram Stoker is saying God is not just, right? Um, well, what do we see? So what, then, what do you do? Well, see, it's hard. This is the trick. Doing things the wrong way, that is, the half-baked way, is really easy, right? You can always go through and cherry-pick quotations to support your thesis. That's easy and kind of fun. Um, what's harder is to read the whole thing really carefully and see, okay, well, if we want to know why Mina gets singed on the forehead by the holy wafer, what we should do is look at how does her the mark on her forehead from the holy wafer? How does this burning of her forehead by the holy wafer? How is it relevant? Like how is it talked about? How does it come up? How are we? How does this text bring us to to um, understand that? To contextualize that? How does it come up? Well, let's look how it comes up. We get in space of what five pages, six pages. We get three separate... These are easy, because they all come all at, all, all at one time, right? And I think Bram Stoker kind of points pretty clearly to the role that that, that that burn on Mina's forehead plays, right? And provides a suggest... I think suggests an answer to the question why would God do that, right? Why would you know... In, within Bram Stoker's little world here, why why would uh, why would Bram Stoker depict God as singeing Mina with this um, with this symbol of um, outcastedness? Here's Jonathan. This is after they realize that Dracula has gone away. Already, the certainty that the Count is out of the country has given her comfort, and comfort is strength to her. For my own part, now that, the, now that his horrible danger is not face to face with us, it seems almost impossible to believe in it. Even my own terrible ex experiences in Castle Dracula seem like a long-forgotten dream. Here in the crisp autumn air and the bright sunlight, alas, how can I disbelieve? In the midst of my thought, my eye fell on the red scar on my poor darling's white forehead. Whilst that lasts, there can be no disbelief, and afterwards the very memory of it will keep faith crystal clear. Jonathan's mind is tempted to wander, and note the way that it's wandering. Um, 
it's falling straight back into its ruts, into its routines. And this is something that several people in the book have already described. The sort of elasticity of the brain, the way that you just uh, go back into the normal groove, right? That's a, that groove, that metaphor is one that uh, um, uh, Dr. Seward uses, I believe. Which is ironic because he uses it on phonograph, right, with the groove. You see, get it? Groove. Anyway, um, uh, but he, um, uh, he, remember he does the same thing after Lucy dies, right? And he tries to get, he tries to get back into um, his regular train of life, right? To return to normalcy after that disturbing event. And then Van Helsing comes and disturbs everything again by saying that his uh, his uh, former beloved is now a walking dead, right? Um, and he doesn't want to go back to thinking about that. He's already kind of put it out of his mind. The way in which we think also remember Mrs. Westenra and uh, nature putting that like protective envelope around her so that she didn't like want to even know about things that might cause her a shock, which might give her a heart attack, right? Um, so... To, okay, that's the way. That's the way people are. That's the way we've seen them acting. We see Jonathan being tempted in the same way. Wouldn't it be tempting? Wouldn't it be easy, just to fall back into thinking, like normal modern nineteenth-century people again, right? Vampires, really, right? Um, you know, maybe everything's fine. Look, she's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Isn't everything fine, right? Lest they there be any diminution of their of his sense of urgency um, lest there be any doubts that might creep in as to whether or not the things that they've seen are really real whether any, you know, all this all seems like a long forgotten dream, right? Um, but no the uh, the red scar on Mina's forehead will keep memory of it will keep faith crystal clear Mina five pages later I feel a wonderful peace and rest tonight. It's as if some haunting presence were removed from me. Perhaps my surmise was not finished. Could not be, for I caught sight in the mirror of the red mark upon my forehead, and I knew that I was still unclean. She's tempted for a moment to think, maybe I'm fine. Maybe I'm better. Maybe it's maybe I'll be okay, right? Perhaps the influence of Dracula has gone away. Maybe since he left the country, I'm fine now, right? No, no, no. Uh, she catches sight of the mark on her forehead, and she knows, no, nothing has really changed, right? It, and just lest she be tempted to, to think that she's actually all right and everything's fine. No, she's reminded, no, no, they still need to take care of this. Dr. Seward, next page. It is really wonderful how much resilience there is in human nature. Let any obstructing cause, no matter what, be removed in any way, even by death, and we fly back to first principles of hope and enjoyment, like with Lucy earlier. More than once, we sat as we sat around the table, my eyes opened in wonder whether the whole of the past days had not been a dream. It was only when I caught sight of the red blotch on Mrs. Harker's forehead that I was brought back to reality. Even now, when I am gravely revolving the matter, it is almost impossible to realize that the cause of all our trouble is still existent. Okay, so you see? So what's the answer to the question, why does... Why would, again, within the framework of Bram Stoker's story here, why would God 
do that to Mina, right? I mean, you know, she didn't do anything wrong. She's all good. She just she's wonderful, and she's she didn't she didn't sign up for this, right? She's the victim here. So why should God cast her out? Why should God cause the wafer to actually singe into her flesh and leave this scar like this leprous mark on her, right? To to you know, why should He simply declare her um, unclean? Why? Because he rejects her? Because he doesn't care how good she is? Because unlike the rest of the men, God doesn't love her? No. No. Because it's a reminder. It's a call to action. Right? All of them have this sort of temptation to think maybe things are okay. Remember how ignorant they are? Remember how dumb these people can be. Right? She looks paler than usual. You know, I... I got, you know, I'm sure she's worried, right? I, I hope the meeting didn't upset her, right? Remember how dumb these people can be, right? Um, is there a chance that some or even maybe all of them might be like, he went away, so we're fine, right? We're good, right? Everything's good now, no problems. That could have happened, right? But the red mark on her forehead is the constant reminder that, no, Mina's at stake, right? Mina's life and possibly Mina's soul more on that another time, um, is at stake, right? And we have to continue. And yes, it's real. No, we cannot doubt it. No, we can't allow ourselves to think like, ah, maybe we've been crazy, right? There's still work to be done, Carolyn. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it does motivate them. Uh, Jennifer, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, Joe Michael says, branding Mina's forehead is easier than tossing lightning bolts at the rest of them to get them moving. Uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Carrie says that again, Stoker uses the threat upon the woman they value to motivate them to constant and courageous action. Absolutely, yeah, Carrie, it's almost like that's kind of what God's plan is, and that Mina's, it's one of Mina's roles, right? So it's not that he is, you know, giving her a raw deal by casting her out. It's that part of her role is to be the motivation for everybody to stick to it and uh, and get this done, right? Um, because we know it is urgent, right? And uh, uh, Van Helsing recognizes that it's urgent, right? He's tried to, he explained this before, but notice all of those wonderings, hey, was it just a dream? Maybe everything's okay now? You know, earlier on he made it pretty clear the circumstance, Right? There are here some who would stand between you and death. You must not die. You must not die by any hand, but least of all by your own. Until the other who has fouled your sweet life is true dead, you must not die. For if he is still with the quick undead, your your death would make you even as he is. No, you must live. You must struggle and strive to live, though death would seem a boon unspeakable. You must fight death himself, though he come to you in pain or in joy, by the day or the night, in safety or in peril. On your living soul I charge you that you do not die, nay, nor think of death, till this great evil be past. Notice the personification of death, and remember the identity, the identification between the personification of death and Dracula earlier on. Remember Mr. Swales, right, who hears death coming? Uh, maybe death is in that wind that's coming in off the coast and then remember Mina when she hears about Mr. Swales being found dead on their seat maybe he saw death with his dying eyes, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, most likely so, right? Um, so we see um, we see this same 
we see the same thing, right? We see this same uh, personification here. You must fight death himself. Resist, right? Resist death, yes, of course. Resist the vampire as well. Um, but um, you must struggle and strive to live. Well, again, we, we see, you know, and, and this seems like, okay, right? Okay, so don't kill yourself. That's good. That's, a, that's important. Duly noted, right? What does this mean? You know, you must strive to live. You must not stop fighting. It's not just that she mustn't give in, right? It's also that she mustn't despair. But it's not also, it's not only that she mustn't despair. She also mustn't forget. She mustn't let herself, nor can any of them, simply lapse into, um, you know, thinking everything's fine. And the red scar on her forehead makes absolutely sure that that doesn't happen. Okay, let me uh, let me try to do um, let me try to do one other thing. Oh yeah, Cynthia, no doubt, absolutely. Uh, um, it is certainly true that the the reason that her forehead is burned is because she's got you know sort of the vampire thing, and that maybe actually, arguably, Van Helsing should perhaps have thought of that before he pressed the holy wafer into her forehead, knowing the kind of effect the holy wafer has had on vampires in the past. That that was probably not the most foresighted thing he could possibly have done, so it's a little bit on him, though nobody really blames him for it, but um, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm not saying that, you know, God is making sort of a special... I'm just saying the effect of that passage is kind of shocking, right? Um, and that passage where Dr. Seward, the good, good, the sweet, sweet, good, good woman passage, um, we see Dr. Seward really um, sort of wrestling with this idea, right? Look at how awesome she is. Look at how good she is. Look at how her response to this situation is a response of faith, right? How she is showing more um, uh, more faith, more piety, more zeal, more, you know, kindness, more forgiveness, more everything good from a Christian standpoint. All of these good things are being brought out of her more and more by her suffering. I mean, this is a really good woman here. And yet, so far as symbols go, she is outcast from God, right? It's that irony, not irony, that injustice, that, you know, those two things so difficult to reconcile in Dr. Seward's mind that he emphasizes there, right? So, so again, my question was just, why? Why would that be? And, uh, and you've, uh, you've, you've heard my answer. Let me try to touch on one more thing. Uh, before we go, uh, just a couple more things on uh, on the general subject that, of course, has come up now and again over throughout the book, uh, more on vampirism and what it means, especially thinking about some of the spiritual parallels that we've been talking about and the whole the whole uh, Dracula Jesus thing and the uh, uh, the 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 Christian stuff. I think we get a couple passages that help us to understand exactly kind of how to frame that if you see what I mean. Well, I hope, hope you will see what I mean. And now, my friends, we have a duty here to do. We must sterilize this earth. This is at Carfax, of course, on the night when they go to his house. So we must sterilize this earth, so sacred of holy memories, that he has brought from a far distant land for such fell use. He has chosen this earth because it has been holy. Thus we defeat him with his own weapon, for we make it more holy still. It was sanctified to such use of man, now we sanctify it to God. As he spoke, he took from his bag a screwdriver and a wrench, and very soon the top of one of the cases was thrown open. The earth smelled musty and close, but we did not somehow seem to mind, for our attention was concentrated on the professor. Taking from his box a piece of the sacred wafer, he laid it reverently on the earth, 
and then shutting down the lid began to screw it home, we aiding him as he worked. Yeah, uh, Arthur, I agree. It would be, uh, I mean, just, uh, it, it would have been much easier if he had had a sonic screwdriver. Totally agree. Um, so, okay. Um, notice the principle here. Um, we They defeat him with his own weapon, right? Um, what is his weapon? What is the weapon with which they defeat him? Holiness, right? He is a parasitic creature, literally parasitic, right? Feeding off the blood of, you know, drawing the life of others to himself, like Renfield, except it works, right? Um, so he, his life is parasitic, but even on the spiritual level, he's parasitic, right? He, uh, uh, he, he has this demonic power, but it's only just a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it itself parasitic. Right, parasitic on goodness, parasitic on love and holiness, all those good things, right? Those sacred loves, the love of mother and child, the love of husband and wife, those things are taken and twisted and made into the weapons of the vampire, right? So we have this earth, so sacred of holy memories, has been brought for such a fell use. He chose the earth because it was holy, right? It's the holiness of this earth that makes it significant to him, that makes him able to use it in the way that he is. The vampires are all about twisting and exploiting and trying to use for their own ends, to twist to their own ends these holy things, right? So how do you fight them? You one-up them, right? You make it more holy, because ultimately the things that they're playing with, right, the holiness, the spiritual things that they are from which they draw their power are far more powerful than they and ultimately they can't hand they can't they can't handle it right they don't actually have authority they have to take their place far off and silent with respect right um this passage is one of those that i think um i find most illuminating one of the most illuminating passages in the whole book as far as moments that kind of help us in understanding how to read and how to interpret what's going on in the story. Jonathan, again, to one thing I have made up my mind. If we find out that Mina must be a vampire in the end, then she shall not go into that unknown and terrible land alone. I suppose it is thus that in old times one vampire meant many. Just as their hideous bodies could only rest in sacred earth, so the holiest love was the recruiting sergeant for their ghastly ranks. Just as their hideous bodies could only rest in sacred earth, so the holiest love was the recruiting sergeant for their ghastly ranks. Right. Okay. Um, so you see the parallel, right? The parallel that he's establishing here. Um... Yeah, Nancy says he should make sure he doesn't mention this to Van Helsing, though. Yeah, yeah, Nancy, I think Van Helsing suspects uh, Jonathan's resolution. But um, anyway, um, think about the parallel that he's establishing here. Um, Jonathan himself, not Bram Stoker, not, not just Bram Stoker, right, but Jonathan himself perceives that the sacred earth that Dracula rests on is a metaphor, or can be taken as a metaphor, 
or if he thinks about the parallel, right? Um, the love that Mina and I have as husband and wife is like the sanctity of the sacred earth. He, uh, just as his, so just as his body can only rest in sacred earth, so the holiest love is the recruiting, so the vampires only thrive through the holiest love, right? The the life the the life and the multiplication of the vampires is as dependent on as as uh, as 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 parasitic of these holy loves, mother and child, husband and wife, as the resting of their bodies on the sacred earth, right? That same kind of twisting, that same kind of perversion. Um, it's a it's a direct parallel. So, so again, you see how this um, see what this suggests. I love the fact that this is Jonathan himself pointing out that it's not. Bram Stoker doesn't just let it sit. Like, I I already had that worked out, right? The parallel between the sacred earth and the the sacred uh, relationships, right? The fact you know that parallel. We already talked about that, right? We were kind of down with that idea already. Jonathan makes it extra explicit, right? Make sure that we can't miss it. But more than just making sure that we can't miss it, he is demonstrating. Some readers, perhaps, might be tempted to... Well, let me back in and come at, come at that from a different direction. Um... in teaching this book in English 101, um, there were often two different forms of resistance that I would sometimes encounter in students, right? One is when I'm trying to sort of show, like, let's, let's like, make these observations and we'll see the pattern that it forms and say, you know, so when I'm asking, when I'm trying to push them to draw conclusions about things like, what does vampirism mean? What is... What is Dracula trying? What is Dracula? What is Stoker saying about vampirism? Right? What? What? How does it work? What is? What's the? What's the point? Right? What's the? What's the? What is the? What is the? the, the what is the essence of vampirism? I used to assign a paper. That was like the paper topic that I assigned for 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 Dracula was for basically for them to to to, to try to put their finger on this point. Right? Um, what point is Stoker making? About, you know about vampirism, and the first form of resistance that I would meet would be students who would basically be resistant to kind of any kind of symbolic interpretation, right? Um, those were the kind of people, I mentioned this before, right, when we were talking about Lucy and the ba- and the kids, you know, the, 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 the kids on the heath, and I would, I kept asking questions like, so why do you think, why is it significant that Lucy only attacks children? And these students would be all like, because children are easy to catch. Uh and safer to catch than adults because adults would call the police and kids won't. And I'm like, yes, probably true, but that's not the correct, that's not what I'm asking, right? You know, so again, that one resistance is the resistance to kind of think in these sort of symbolic terms that are at all. The second problem or sort of form of resistance is if they did take that step, many 
would then want to make the whole thing into an allegory, right? Oh, okay, so uh, it's an and and again, uh, usually an allegory of sex or something about sex. You know, it's like a, an allegory of sexual desire. You know, because Victorians were not comfortable with sexual desire and thought sexual desire was wicked, and so you know, like vampires are all voluptuous. This is well documented. So, um, so this shows that, like that. It's just, so the vampire is a symbol of, you know, it's just that kind of reductive reading to just say vam, the vampire equals this. And so when we read, when we, when reading about the vampires, we should just be, we should, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's merely sex, right? Okay. Um, but the truth is not that, right? It's not an allegory. Yes, there is symbolic stuff going on. But no, it's not an allegory, right? What is it? Well, Jonathan gets it, right? Jonathan sees the parallel. Um, the important thing, what he he comes to understand, what is the essence of vampirism, right? What is the heart of vampirism? What is it that makes vampires so evil? What makes them monstrous? What makes them horrible? What makes them horrible is the way that they are connected to, dependent upon, um, but... Uh, uh, but horribly twisting and perverting sacred holy things, right? And the perception of the parallel here, his own, again, within the story, not just our perception of the parallel, but his perception of the parallel, really reinforces not only the point, but how, sort of, the level on which you see the point. He's not the... The vampire is not a... is not an allegory to Jonathan, right? But nevertheless, he sees the significance. He sees that that sort of spiritual truth um, that is the basis of, is the, uh, is the root of vampirism. And I think it's a really interesting and, uh, and instructive point. All right, we are just about out of time. I have a, a few other passages I wanted to do. Got through 20 tonight. I'm not a bad number, right? I only had 24 total, uh, but I can save those for next time. We can, we can fold those into to, uh, to, to next week. Next week through the end of the book. We're finally done. Um, and uh, please keep um, uh, keep an eye out um, and start sending me... I want to get emails. Right? Remember, class after next. Next week, we're going to do the end of the book. Class after next, we're going to do a Q&A. Um, and I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be an- to, to answer your questions, talk about topics that you're unsatisfied with, that we haven't talked about enough, or if I've not covered something, or if you have a question. As I said, I've gotten several already, and I'm kind of keeping them uh, for that class, but I think we should have some room to talk about more, too. So, um, please do send me emails about that, and I'll try to include your questions and uh, uh, topics in our discussion in a fortnight. All right? Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, Good night, and I will see you guys next week. Thanks very much. Bye now.